Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Hard to believe we've already come to the end of the week, but it is Friday, April 8th. The world of agriculture still has things happening in it. We're going to be discussing those things here on the program. Climate smart ag policies are all the rage right now, but the question is, does the science support the practices and does it all make sense for farmers? We're going to talk about that in segment two with Allison Thompson, the program director at Ag Mission, working to bridge those gaps rather between science and practice in agriculture. And in segment three, we're going to talk with Dan Halstrom. He's the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, and woo, the first two months of this year saw meat sales, particularly beef, hot leaving our shores. Pork slowing down a little bit. Dan will give us an update on what to expect as the rest of this year rolls along. And in segment four, we're going to talk with Chris Bliley. He's the Senior Vice President for Regulatory Affairs at Growth Energy, and it was announced yesterday by the EPA that several small refinery exemptions from 2018 have been denied, officially formally denied. Chris will let us know what that means for ethanol demand as we look out into this summer, but also what does this tell us about the Biden administration's approach to biofuels? We're getting a little more clarity Chris will help put it in perspective for us. But before we talk about all of that, of course, Friday, April 8th, this is a day that USDA will be releasing their World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates. Those will be coming out at noon Eastern Time, 11 Central. We're going to talk about those briefly, as well as what's going on in the livestock markets with our friend Carl Setzer of AgriVisor. Carl, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Let's talk first about this WASDE report coming out later on today. Carl, what do you expect to see uh, from corn as far as the U.S. carryout? Any big changes coming today? You know, I'm not expecting too much. You know, Mike, looking at it here, we got, you know, the average trade estimate, 1.4 billion bushels of carryout, down about 40 million from what we had in, uh, you know, that we saw in, in the March numbers. I see no reason to disagree with that. You know, our, our exports have been pretty decent. Um, you know, you look at ethanol, ethanol demand is, is perked up here a little bit recently. And you take some feed wheat out of the equation, you know, to see a little bit of a trimming wouldn't be too surprising. And of course, we have the quarterly stocks numbers that will be figured into this. So i really not expecting, you know, what I would call a huge surprise there. The trade range, 1.3 billion to 1.47, uh, you know, to, to fall within that range, not to, you know, I, I don't see anything that would justify being outside of it anyway. Well, that makes sense. Carl, I'm hearing a lot of talk about South American production. We're still worried about what they're going to produce on the bean side, as well as looking ahead to corn pollination. Are you expecting any big drops or changes, I should say, in Brazil's production on either corn or beans? You know, looking at the soybeans, Mike, let's start out with, you know, Conab was out yesterday, 122.5 million metric tons. Uh, Saffirus came out earlier in the week. They're a little bit more optimistic. Their crop was up around that 124 million metric tons. USDA last month on, on soybeans in Brazil, 127. I do think we trimmed that down. I don't know as if we drop right down to that 122. USDA tends to be a little slower and what they do for revisions. But to come in around that, you know, 124, 125, that would not surprise me at all. Matter of fact, I would I would fully expect us to shave about two, three million metric tons off that, that Brazilian soybean crop. The corn crop, there again, we've seen some increases here lately. Uh, you know, trade's starting to, to ratchet it up a little bit. You know, USDA sitting here on that 117, I think we come in maybe a little higher. Um, you know, we could see that crop up around that 118 just from some of the reports we've had up to this point. Now, there is concern, uh, you know, over the dry weather coming into Brazil. We'll definitely be keeping a monitor on that as we move forward. But as of right now, it's a little too soon to say we're going to take yield down on Brazil. 
the bottom line is, Mike, we got to look at last year, Brazil only produced an 87 million metric ton corn crop. So even at the low end of estimates, it's going to be a lot bigger corn crop coming out of Brazil this year than last. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case. Carl, I wanted to ask you about a comment you made on your morning newsletter. You mentioned that you've heard that China is struggling to move fertilizer where it's needed. And we don't think about China as a corn grower, but they're huge. 273 million metric tons of corn produced in 2021. Carl, what, what have you heard on the fertilizer situation in China? Well, it's really it's logistics altogether in China. They've got these COVID restrictions in place, and they, they simply can't move products from one to another, um, you know, two-week quarantine. So even if you find a trucker that's willing to, you know, put fertilizer, any product, fertilizer, soybeans, wheat, you name it, we start putting those together, and all of a sudden, you know, when truckers load up, they go from one providence to another, They've got a quarantine for two weeks. They're just saying it's not worth it. So we're really starting to see a struggle with, you know, with their, their fertilizer movement. I do think that starts to become a little bit more of a problem on their, you know, their winter crops, you know, in the, in the course spring. They want to get some planting done, you know, in, in China as well. Um, you know, they continue to come out and say that they're going to supply everything to the world. But you got to start to question if they're having problems moving product domestically, if they can really do that globally. And that's going to be, I think, a story that we're going to have to watch here in the near future, Mike. I think you're right, Carl. I want to take our topic, our conversation over to the cattle side of the futures markets here, Carl. We've seen cash trade and fat cattle 138 to 141 so far this week. What are your expectations here as you look out over the next couple weeks? You know, we're at the start of the grilling season here, Mike, when everybody, you know, starts to, you know, look at April, end of April, we get past Easter, and all of a sudden you start to focus on that Memorial Day demand coming up. Uh, you know, beef slaughter has been perking up a little bit, hog slaughter also up a little bit, uh, but you look at this, this cattle demand, the one thing I'm starting to note is even though slaughter numbers remain fairly active on cattle, Let's look at the weights. Weights are starting to come in a little bit lower than where they were. Now, it, not a huge amount. I mean, you're talking a couple pounds per animal on the average for the United States. But you got to look at, you know, feeding $7.50, you know, $7.75 corn. Uh, you know, as well as I do, when corn gets expensive, you know, you feed it with a teaspoon. When it's cheap, you feed it with a scoop shovel. These feeders are starting to look at these break-evens and say, look, we got to, you know, we can't hold these animals any longer than we have to. It could be a growing trend, definitely something I'm going to watch. Now, it could put a little bit more beef on the market, and the cash market's telling us it's got plenty on hand. But what's this going to mean going forward? Definitely going to have to watch these cold storage reports and see if we start to see a loss in, uh, in our inventory as we move through the summer months. Carl, I'm glad you mentioned that. To, to track this, to track the availability of beef in the system, is cold storage what you'd watch first and foremost? I, I keep an eye on the cold storage, Mike. I think it's the best information we have, but you got to look at your inventory reports and really your consumer demand. It all gels together at the end of the day. It does. Carl, always appreciate your insight, folks. We've been talking to Carl Setzer of AgriVisor, and when we return, we'll talk with Allison Thompson of AgMission. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Tough 5 ec is a selective contact post-emergent herbicide that synergizes HPPD inhibitors and enhances the effect of atrazine. Tough 5 ec works fast and can significantly improve the control of weeds such as water hemp, palmer, and kochia today and help prevent the selection of herbicide resistance tomorrow. 
Tough 5 EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5 EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Talk to doctor now and share it. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it twice a day. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it in the morning and before dinner. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it, and share it with my doctor. Nearly one in two U.S. adults have high blood pressure. That's why it's important to self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. It starts with a monitor. Now that I know my blood pressure numbers, I talked with my doctor. We're getting those numbers down. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Talk to doctor now and share it. Be next to talk to your doctor about your blood pressure numbers. Get down with your blood pressure. Self-monitoring is power. Learn more at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, thanks for tuning in today to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. It seems like at least once a week here on this program, we discuss some new program being rolled out to address climate smart agriculture. There are calls for farmers to work to, to be better stewards of the climate constantly. And these calls are coming from, from groups around the world. They're hearing it from their consumers. And then there are groups of climate researchers over here working out the best ways that, that agriculture can be a part of the solution to climate. And the the question is, how do we get these groups together? How do we get farmers who are doing the work on the ground that could benefit climate with the researchers who are figuring out the new ways to make this stuff work even better? Well, one group is working to bridge that divide, and that's Ag Mission. Joining us today is Allison Thompson. She's the program director with Ag Mission. And Allison, fill us in. How is Ag Mission working to bridge that, that gap? Great, thanks. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, Ag Mission is, a, is an initiative of the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. So we're, uh, our mission is to build public-private partnerships. So we're, we're funded by the Farm Bill to support really innovative big ideas in, in agriculture and food research. Um, and we're working uh, with, in this case, PepsiCo, McDonald's, the Nature Conservancy, and other partners, and we're looking to build our partnerships out even more. Um, and we're working with some farmer organizations, including the World Farmers Organization, U.S. Farmers and Ranchers in Action, um, all working together to figure out how can we accelerate research so that it really does support um, farmers on the ground and uh, understanding and, and building the case for all of these climate smart practices we've been talking about. Allison, as you've been working in this space, where do you think the, the breakdown is between the folks doing the research and the folks on the ground? Is it just a matter of we're operating in two different silos? Um, no, I think it might be a matter of perspective, quite honestly. I think um, when you're, we talk about co-creation is what we've started talking about in the research realm, which is this idea. You might have a really great, you know, as a scientist, you want to go out and understand the nitrogen cycle and do some work on some farms and test some things and really understand really the, those dynamics. And that's really important. But that also has to translate into something that's useful for, for those farmers. And so 
really at the front end, before you even start doing that research, you need to go out and talk to those farmers and find out, okay, what are your questions about nitrogen? What are, what are the challenges you may have had? You know, you understand about uh, nitrous oxide emissions and, and climate change and all of that, but really, you know, what are some of the challenges you have in, in changing your practices? And, and, and the research really needs to then be uh, focused on, on helping to answer some of those questions. They're really practical on the ground questions that the farmers have. They're the experts on their land. They're the ones who really have that, that, that deep knowledge and understanding of, of, of how these things will impact uh, production and all of that. So we need to really be collaborating much more at the front end of research in that research design. So that's why even at the very big strategy level of Ag Mission, we're trying to work with the farmer organizations to make sure we have that perspective. I think that's an important perspective to bring to the table. And Allison, when you think about the mission part, the Ag Mission partners that you have already, you mentioned some big dogs, McDonald's, PepsiCo, the Nature Conservancy. What are these these partners looking to do first? Do we have an idea as to what aspects of uh, of this they're looking to research? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of really interest from these organizations in accelerating things, making things happen faster, having adoption happen faster. So working out what is the technical assistance, financial mechanisms that farmers need there. Um, there's also taking a little bit of a step back and a broader view of how do we not just look at individual farmers and what they're doing and trying to you know win hearts and minds and things like that, but actually look at um, how can we make climate smart agriculture also the smart business choice, right? Recognizing that farms are businesses and they need to be run as businesses first. And so really to accelerate adoption, to get things to happen faster, we need to unlock that and figure out, okay, what is it um, that farmers need in terms of, of resources, technical assistance, things like, you know, the right seed for cover cropping, the right markets for, you know, um, more diverse rotations, things like that. So what is it that makes climate smart agriculture also the smart business decision? I think there's a lot of interest and motivation in that factor as well as, as really just trying to get, um, we see more and more urgency, I think, coming uh, from you know, things like the, the recent uh, science report even that just came out this week um, about really there's this urgency to act. And so figuring out how do we how do we translate that into something that can uh, really make a difference on the ground? Well, and I'm glad you brought up that IPPC report it was released earlier this week, Allison. And yeah, it it will probably continue to keep the heat up on uh, on these partners to find additional ways to reduce uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Were there any bi other big takeaways from that IPCC report? Yeah, um, so it, it really, I think, was a, a, an important one. So I, um, I've actually been working for more than two decades on, on climate change and agriculture. And I'd say when I, when I started, it was really a thought amongst the scientists, okay, we just need to, we need to work out how bad this could be and figure out how would we adapt, how would we reduce those emissions to avoid these impacts, things like that. Um, and I'd say now the science really has advanced and we understand uh, really how bad it might be. We understand that it's, it's worse than initially we thought it was going to be. Um, and we understand what needs to be done. And that's really everybody needs to act. So obviously we're talking about agriculture here, but I think the big message coming out of that report is it's not, you know, not just agriculture. It's, it's all sectors of the economy. All countries, all regions really need to do what they can um, to reduce emissions if we're going to have, you know, have a chance of meeting those, those goals of staying under two degrees. Um, uh, or really even just mitigating the impacts, we really all do need to be acting. So it really also calls out when you look at some of the, the graphics in there, it really shows up, um, in particular, the potential for soil carbon and other mitigation on the land. It does look like there's really a lot of great opportunity on the land, but that um, is, is, it has been difficult to realize just because of so much diversity of how land is owned and managed uh, globally and, and, and nationally. And so it's working out as a, uh, uh, together, you know, how we start to unlock that mitigation potential and really go for it. But, but the message is coming out is that the science has worked and we know what needs to be done. Um, it's really now up to everybody to, to take action based on those findings. Allison, you mentioned two decades you've been working in this space. And in order for Climate Smart Ag to work, it has to be, as you mentioned, it has to make sense as a business proposition. D is there an argument to be made that these practices will just have to work as a business proposition because this climate change is continuing to accelerate. Yeah, so there's absolutely part of this is about when, when we talk about climate smart agriculture, it's not just about reducing emissions. I mean, that has to be part of it, but it's also really about building resiliency. And 
really agriculture is in a fortunate place because it's the same the same practices do both right when you talk about climate smart it's the same thing you hear about as sustainable regenerative and so forth uh, you know soil health all of these things um, will help make farmers more 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 resource use efficient right so so requiring less resources less inputs and things like that to make them more economically resilient it improves the soil improves the ability of the soil to hold water um, to guard against things like drought, to mitigate the impact of floods, all of that. So these things are working both to help agriculture reduce emissions, but also to help agriculture be more resilient to the changes that are coming, to the changes that that people are already seeing, right? These are things that I'm sure your listeners are dealing with. You know, every year they're having these these, uh, extreme events happen. And so the same, we're, we're very fortunate, I think, in agriculture that we can build resiliency and reduce emissions by doing uh, these same practices. And that's what really what Climate Smart is. It helps us in both directions. Right, right. Our operations become more truly sustainable in that they're able to withstand bigger swings in pricing, but also it's something yeah. that the consumer wants out there. Allison, to that end, on the Ag Mission website, you note that only 3% of uh, of ag climate, or excuse me, ag climate solutions are only receiving about 3% of global climate funding. Do you think that's going to rapidly increase here over the next two or three years? Um. Good question. Certainly, we hope so. Certainly, we are doing our best to work and raise funds uh, to be able to spend on this Ag Mission initiative. Um, we're working with a lot of partners. I think the, there is increasing recognition of the role agriculture could play here. Uh, at the same time, as I mentioned, everybody needs to be acting, right? So I think we need to see that whole pie of, of, of funding going to, to uh, climate mitigation and, and adaptation increasing. And I think we will see that. So I do think there will be more coming. I think that... Um, Increasingly, as well, you know, uh, companies. You mentioned the consumer, you know, having an interest in this, but but corporations as well, whether or not their consumers are asking for it, they see for their businesses. You know, that's why we have PepsiCo and McDonald's engaged and other companies interested for their businesses. Um, they want to be sustainable. They want to be able to reduce their emissions, and they see real opportunities to do that by working with their supply chains and, and working with the farmers they source from. So there is real interest there, and I did definitely see that only increasing in the years to come. Allison, before we let you go, if folks are interested, they want to learn more about Ag Mission, where should they go to do so? Sure. Well, um, our website's a great resource. It's agmission.org. Uh, you can contact us through there. Thanks very much. AgMission.org. Folks, check that out. We've been talking to Allison Thompson. She is the program director there with Ag Mission. And stick around, folks. When AOA returns, we're going to check in with Dan Halster, president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, about the sales of beef and pork in the first two months of 2022. Stick with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex premium diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Okay, need a little more. Too much, little less, just about got it. And that's what it's like figuring out nitrogen. But with my field nurture from FS, your crop specialist can help with expertise and a vast array of tools to manage nitrogen all season. You'll get a plan for the right source at the right rates at the right times and in the right place to maximize ROI. So talk with your FS crop specialist to learn more about my field nurture. Right there. Perfect. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me, you don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, it is WASD day for the grain and oilseed trade. Fresh off last week's prospective planting and quarterly grain stocks numbers, we are moving on to the April WASD report due out at 11 a.m. from USDA. Few surprises expected in this report. It's generally not a huge market mover. Hopefully that's going to be the case. We'll have to see. Corded soybean crop ratings dropped notably in Argentina this week as the harvest progresses there, so we could see some downward adjustments in production there. Brazil's soybean crop should also shrink. Its corn crop should be flat to a bit higher, but this may be the highest corn number we see going forward. 
as a dryer pattern to set up for pollination and early grain fill in Monte Grosso and surrounding areas for that safrina corn crop. Also, USDA could give Ukraine the benefit of the doubt, taking it uh, at its word that it will be able to produce and export grain in the year ahead. However, mixed messages continue to flow out of Ukraine, and that's normal in the fog of war. The Ministry of Ag recently said that this year's production will be roughly half of normal due to the challenges created by the Russian invasion, but it made no mention of exports. That's something we're going to have to see. For now, it could be considered an optimistic outlook. Again, what will the WASDI numbers bring us? We'll be looking closely for those at 11 a.m. Central Time. Stock futures mixed as traders positioned for the weekend, focused on more sanctions on Russia and rapidly rising interest rates amid talk of the Fed, withdrawing stimulus from the economy. While crude oil prices are trading slightly higher here in the early trading on this Friday. Taking a look at a few of the numbers here in the early trade, May corn up six and three quarters, seven sixty-four and a half. May beans up twenty and three quarters, sixteen sixty-six and a quarter. Bean meal is up sharply with bean oil slightly higher. May Chicago wheat up fourteen and a half, ten thirty-four and a half. May Kansas City wheat up eleven, ten eighty-one and three quarters. May spring wheat up fourteen and a quarter, eleven thirteen and three quarters. While cattle and hogs are mixed as they wait to see what grain prices do after the WASDI report. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. You know, the American farmer is producing stuff that folks around the world just can't wait to get their hands on, and that includes U.S. beef and pork. As we turn the calendar into April, we are getting the total numbers of beef and pork exports for the month of February. Joining me today to talk about those numbers is Dan Hallstrom. He is the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about those beef exports first for the uh, first January and February parts of the year here. Big numbers for beef in terms of tonnage. Dan, we're shipping a lot of product. We certainly are, Mike. Uh, you know, the momentum continues from uh, 2021 uh, with broad-based growth. I mean, we, uh, we're up, <coughs> excuse me, we're up 5% uh, for the month year on year, but, but really across the board, you know, China's leading the way. We're up... Uh, almost double from a year ago in China. Uh, that business continues to look very, very good. But, uh, you know, we have several other, other regions, you know, Taiwan, Central America, South America, Caribbean, uh, even Africa and variety meats all showing good growth on beef. So, uh, and, and the larger markets are doing pretty well, you know, Japan and Korea. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think, uh, you know, the rebound globally post-COVID uh, are starting to really show uh, good results on beef. Yeah, they are. And Dan, what really struck me as you were reporting the, the data there at USMEF was that export tonnage is up 5% year over year, but export value is up 46%, almost 50% higher than it was in uh, February of 2021. The global consumer, it seems, still has cash on hand to pay a premium for U.S. product. Well, that's a really good point, Mike. The uh, the resiliency of demand is uh, honestly even a little amazing to me, and I've been doing this a long time. I mean, we're we're at uh, on a per head basis year to date we're four hundred seventy four dollars a head, and that's without rendered products and hides. If you add them, then you'd be well over five hundred dollars a head. And uh, 
Yeah, everyone keeps wondering how long the price point can continue, but so far it's pretty darn solid, uh, you know, really across the board, not only uh, muscle cuts, but the variety of meats that I mentioned earlier. We're almost $2 billion in sales through two months, so uh, quite amazing on the beef side. That is absolutely incredible to think about. You you mentioned we're seeing very strong sales into China. That's continuing. But Dan, you also highlighted some of the other markets where U.S. beef has, has long been celebrated by the consumers. How are we doing in Japan so far this year? Yeah, Japan right now, we're, we're year to date. We're, we're steady, just down a little bit. Uh, call it steady, um, uh, you know, through two months. And uh, uh, still one of our largest value markets. So very, very important market. Uh, you've got to keep in mind Japan in particular and Korea uh, as well as China, those three markets, a lot of people don't realize this, they're still very much locked down from COVID. Uh, Japan and Korea are slowly starting to come out of it. Uh, food service is starting to rebound very slowly. But China, uh, what's really kind of amazing about the beef numbers is this, this is in light of a full-fledged lockdown due to COVID in China. I'm sure a lot of people have heard and read about Shanghai in particular. But really, it's all of the eastern seaboard of China uh, is pretty much locked down. Uh, the retail is booming, of course, during a lockdown, but food service is absolutely getting hammered. So. Once they get through this period, and they will, um, there should be some, some rebound on the food service side as well. But we're very much still dealing with COVID-19 and the Asian markets today. Yeah, that is true. Dan, looking over to the European markets, given the crisis between Russia and Ukraine, are we seeing European buyers step in to secure any American protein as of yet? Well, the, uh, the beef numbers, uh, interesting you bring that up, the beef numbers are actually up, uh, you know, for beef, U.S. beef into uh, Europe. A little hard to tell what's, you know, I think, I think this would have happened anyway, despite what's happening in the Ukraine and the Eastern European area. Um, because I think, you know, COVID as well there is starting to be lifted and we're starting to see food service uh, rebound. But, you know, uh, if we want to segue to the pork side here, uh, one of the things that is happening, and, and this, this could be a combination of, of the issues in the Ukraine and just the hog cycle, but we are seeing uh, the numbers of uh, the prices uh, really skyrocket on European pork, but keep in mind they've been low for so long that they're our main competitor globally. So prices are starting to head up, and there's some concerns on the supply side uh in certain parts of europe so that whole dynamic is changing and i'm sure that the conflict in ukraine has something to do with that a little hard to tell in these early stages but a lot of moving parts in the global marketplace when it comes to uh, what's going on with pricing and supplies that is certainly true. Dan, you, you we're discussing the pork market here. One headline in pork that was huge two years ago, and it's kind of been pushed to the back burner as uh, other global crises have uh, taken the fore. But I'm curious about African swine fever. What have we heard globally about the spread of that disease? And is that still impacting the global pork trade? Well, without, <clears throat> excuse me, without a doubt, it is still impacting the global pork trade. But in China, particularly, uh, there is definitely a rebuild going on in the herd, and we still hear reports of some outbreaks here and there, but I think for the most part, uh, <clears throat> it's getting more under control every day, and we're starting to see that domestic Chinese herd uh, rebuild, and, and it's reflected in the export numbers. You know, for the for the month of February, the volumes year on year from U.S. to China were down about 50%. Uh, we totally expected this. Uh, this is not a surprise, but... Uh, when you look at it on a year-on-year -year basis, it looks rather dramatic. That being said, we're still seeing uh, pretty good numbers, almost 200,000 metric tons in the month of February, um, down 17% mainly due to China. But we're seeing, you know, Mexico and the Latin America area, uh, we're just seeing huge numbers. Mexico is up 30% year-on-year for pork. Um, and, and, you know, Central and South America have some pretty good things going on as well. So once again, I think the... Uh, the rebound and the increase in some of the North and South American tourism into the into that region on food service is starting to help as well.
Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that because I noticed in your write-up of this that uh, Mexico, again, huge buyer of U.S. pork. And I wondered what was changed in Dan so it's more tourists moving down or coming down to Mexico again, driving some food service. Do you think this is the kind of jump in pork purchases that will be long-lasting for Mexico and Central America? Well, um, yeah, I do. I think that, I think there's a rebound coming and, uh, and the food service sector. It's not back to normal, don't get me wrong. It, there's still... It's, it's clawing its way back. It's still not where it used to be. But I think the real driver is the trade. It's the retail. It's the subsectors of retail. Um, you know, a lot of pork goes into Mexico. It's further processed for the retail, retail trade and for the convenience store trade and things like this. That business is booming. I mean, the consumer demand in Mexico is, is really, and, and globally, is outstanding. I mean, the resilience is, is really impressive, and uh, Mexico is no exception. We're, we're seeing that loud and clear. That is good news. As you look down through the rest of Central America, in this era of supply chain challenges, anything we can reach with a truck or a train or a boat, Dan, is is a nice option to have. Do you continue to expect growth of meat exports into Central and South America from the U.S.? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, on both beef and pork. Uh, pork is leading the way. Um, traditionally, more probably a little more pork consumers than beef. But beef is gaining traction as well in both Central and South America. And to give the listeners a little more detail, Colombia has been a home run, absolute home run for both species. Uh, you know, you look at places like Chile are growing. And then in Central America, you've got El Salvador, Guatemala, you know, Nicaragua. Uh, if you look at them in the sum whole of its parts, um, there's an increasing middle class, there's increasing tourism opportunities, especially in post-COVID. So, yeah, it's shaping up nicely to continue to see growth, uh, uh, not only in 2022, but uh, beyond as well. And then USMEF, of course, tracking the exports of U.S. red meat includes beef and pork, most notably, but also lamb. And lamb exports have been on fire. Dan, could you give us a little update on the lamb export business? Yeah, if, um, yeah, the two mainstays, which would be Mexico and then uh, the Caribbean market as well, uh, are, are seeing dramatic growth. And I, I got to think that uh, that's a combination of booming retail, the same uh, I, you know, the same trends that we were just talking about for beef and pork, but but also, um, you know, that's a heavily concentrated uh, protein for food service, and they absolutely had a real rough go, you know, in a lot of these markets during COVID. So as we come out of COVID, um, you know, not only in the Caribbean, and Mexico, but other parts of the world, we we fully think that uh, land has a lot of opportunity going forward as well. That is great to see producers making a little bit of money here in the ag industry. Dan, looking out here over the next couple months, are there any big things coming that you're watching from the U.S. MEF perspective that could impact our markets? Well, yeah, I think, uh, <clears throat> number one, uh, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, we have to keep a close eye on because, uh, uh, you know, hopefully it does not spread and hopefully it gets contained where it's at. And it's, and it's a shorter term phenomenon, not a longer term. But, uh, you know, in the case it were to expand to other countries, this, this we have to keep an eye on because uh, it has the potential to disrupt things even further from a supply chain standpoint. Um, that aside, I think the global supply chain in general is still a challenge. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, the unreliability of shipments, you know, vessel shipments uh, globally. Uh, COVID, as I mentioned earlier, in China is a concern. And a couple of the largest ports in the world are located in China, and they're seeing, they're seeing some backups due to COVID and shortage of labor. So these are some things we've got to keep an eye on. But in general, demand is, is not only healthy, but it's booming. That is good to hear. We've been talking to Dan Halstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Anytime, Mike. And folks, stick around. Chris Bliley of Growth Energy joins us after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 
54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven to. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Each week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, Soil Date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Tough 5EC is a selective contact post-emergent herbicide that synergizes HPPD inhibitors and enhances the effect of atrazine. Tough 5EC works fast and can significantly improve the control of weeds such as water hemp, palmer, and kochia today and help prevent the selection of herbicide resistance tomorrow. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container, because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. 
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. A story we have been tracking in the ag industry for some time is the story of the renewable fuel standard, the law that that requires biofuels to be blended. Well, there have been a lot of give and take issues with the RFS, and lately we've been watching the Biden administration to see how their EPA is going to approach biofuels policy more broadly. And yesterday, we got a little bit of some insight as to how the EPA will be handling that. Joining me to discuss it is Chris Bliley. He's the Senior Vice President for Regulatory Affairs at Growth Energy. And Chris, fill us in. What did the USDA, or excuse me, EPA, announce yesterday? Uh, sure, Mike, and uh, glad to be on again. So EPA announced after a great deal of litigation uh, by us in the biofuel space, as well as other ag groups, uh, we saw you know years of abuse of small refinery exemptions, essentially exempting refineries from their obligations to blend more biofuels. And one swath of those refinery exemptions were 31 that were granted for 2018, and that was 1.4 billion gallons of biofuels that were exempted. And so following the litigation, this EPA reversed that decision uh, and basic and denied those exemptions. Unfortunately for us, I think, and for biofuels producers and for farmers, they didn't take the next step and require that refineries had to retire credits based on that that biofuel blending. So in some ways, you know, it's almost an empty victory because we got the decision we wanted, but really no teeth on the compliance side. And so I think importantly, though, in the decision, EPA signals that going forward, they're going to continue to deny these exemptions in line with recent litigation. And in the future, this is a little bit of a unique example, and in the future, it it looks like they're going to hold refineries' feet to the fire, and we're certainly going to be vigilant in that, that regard. Chris, these SREs, the small refinery exemptions, they have been a political football uh, really since the start of the Trump administration, at least in public knowledge. Going back to 2018, as EPA did with these waivers, are these the farthest back in time or are there some from even farther back that EPA will be taking a look at? Well, so they proposed to deny 65 pending exemptions, and they haven't finalized decisions on those. And and as you said, they're really across a number of years during the Trump administration. Uh, Most of these are are pending in more recent years, so for 2020, 2021. uh, But, you know, these go back to 2018. Uh, Under the law, there's actually no... There's no time frame for when a refinery has to apply, so they can do it at any other time. So we'll just have to see how they do it. But, you know, these are certainly reaching back far, uh, and they're based on the decision that EPA made and, again, the litigation that followed. So, Chris, with the EPA coming out and saying we are going to hold refiners' feet to the fire, we are not going to be granting as many SREs as perhaps has been granted in the past, does this put the SRE issue to bed for you guys? Have we Can we move beyond it now as the industry, or are we going to have to keep an eye on them? We're going to have to keep an eye on it. Uh, it is, you know, we're going to wait to see what's finalized in those 65 pending refinery exemptions, certainly proposing to deny those. It once finalized, that's going to be really important. And unlike the decision that was made yesterday, we expect EPA to require refineries to submit blending credits to show that they're blending more renewable fuel. Remember, at the end of the day, the renewable fuel standard is blending more biofuels, which means more bushels. And so, unfortunately, yesterday's decision was the right one in denying the exemptions, but it really doesn't do anything to drive more renewable fuel blending. We expect, and we're going to be vigilant going forward, that as they move to deny these decisions, once they finalize those, that they do things that are going to require more biofuel blending. That's really going to be the key for our biofuel producers as well as for farmers. 
Those 65 exemptions that are still pending, Chris, do we have any indications from the EPA as to when a decision would be made, a final decision? Uh, we don't have a, a date certain at this point. However, I would say that you have a pending proposal for renewable volume obligations that they expect to finalize soon. We actually have a, a proposed consent decree to get that finalized by June 3rd. So because the refinery exemptions are so tied to the volumes, one might expect that those get done roughly the same time that they finalize the volumes. Again, not a guarantee. I don't have, we don't have a date certain from EPA, but because they're so interrelated, you could see those moving potentially together. That would make sense. And that was how they announced it in the initial finding. Chris, thinking ahead to this summer, of course, June 1st is rapidly approaching. We The RVP issue kicks in and E15 sales stop. Have we, have you folks been able to make any progress with getting an emergency RVP waiver for this summer? Well, I, I think we're continuing to push uh, at every point we can to try and get relief for this summer. You saw a number of congressional hearings where lawmakers raise this issue, you know, in the House Agriculture Committee, the Senate Commerce Committee, the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and directly with the EPA Administrator and the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. You can tell that this is on the foremost minds of lawmakers across the Midwest, where there are stations selling, where consumers are seeing prices at, you know, roughly 50, up to 50 cents less per gallon. And so it's a critical issue. And, and, you know, here we are weeks away. So I think we saw a lot of progress this, this week with lawmakers getting attention on it, getting attention of USDA, EPA, and others who are testifying. But it's going to be critical that EPA makes the decision and announces it soon so that retailers have the certainty to move forward this summer. And so we're going to continue to push at every place we can. That is the key. I will be salty if that low price fuel option disappears on June 1st. Hopefully the folks in D.C. are listening. We've been talking to Chris Bliley, Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs with Growth Energy. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. And, and folks, tune in on Monday. We'll have more AOA talking weather and policy, politics, policy. So don't miss us on Monday. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Okay, gotta be late. Gotta go, gotta go. Where'd I put... Ah, wallet. Check. And... Oh, phone. Uh, check. Keys. Check. Lunch. Check. Checking for the things you need doesn't take long. But what about checking for your safety? Right now, one in every five vehicles on the road has an open safety recall, but it only takes seconds to check for open recalls on your car at checktoprotect.org. All you need is your vehicle identification number or license plate number. Your automaker may not have the right information to notify you about recalls by mail, especially if you recently moved or drive an older or used car. Checktoprotect.org is the quick, easy way to find out if your vehicle has an open safety recall and find the closest dealer who can make the repair for free. Oh, oh, laptop. Check. Before you go, take a minute. Visit checktoprotect.org. Check to Protect is a program of the National Safety Council.